exactly are the teachings of the Enneagram? Do its questionable origins matter when using it for spiritual discipleship today? Is it just a new, new age tool? What are the true self, the false self, and the universal Christ? And how do these principles align or depart from the Bible's teachings? Is there a place for Christian mysticism in the church? We will be talking about all of that and more on today's episode of Theology On Air. Well, welcome back to Theology on Air. I am Sarah Stone, Outreach Director for Young Adults at Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church, and one of your hosts for today's show, joined um, by my co-producer, Evan McClanahan, the pastor at First Lutheran. Say hi. Hi. And uh, today we are joined by two very special guests, quasi-famous, I might say. Uh, Marcia Montenegro is a former professional astrologer. She taught astrology, was involved in Eastern and New Age practices for many years. Uh, through her ministry, Christian Answers for the New Age, Marcia speaks around the country as well as writing tons of articles. She even co-authored a book with our other guest, which I've got with me. It's really good. She has a master's in religion from Southern Evangelical Seminary and serves as a missionary with Fellowship International Mission in Pennsylvania. And we also have Don Vineau, a former atheist and now president and co-founder of Midwest Christian Outreach, along with his wife of 50 years. MCOI is a mission to cults and non-Christian religions. So we have quite the lineup today. I'm really excited. We're going to be talking about some kind of controversial stuff. We're going to be talking about the Enneagram and Richard Rohr and mysticism and all of that. Um, but again, for those of you joining us maybe for the first time, Theology on Air is a ministry born out of Theology on Tap, where we get a bunch of young adults in Houston together over craft beer, talking about fascinating philosophy, culture, religion, uh, Christianity, faith, all of that. And um, so we're back again to do that with you guys today. Really excited. To get us started, I would love to have each of our guests just give us a little bit of your own story. Like, how did you even become interested in this topic? What background led you to end up, of course, getting to the point where you would co-author a book on it? And uh, why don't we start with Marsha? Okay. Um, hi. Great to be on um, your program, Sarah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, I was involved in the New Age for many years. Uh, many, many years, at least 20 years. I uh, was a professional astrologer, president of the Astrological Society, chairperson of the uh, Board of Astrology Examiners that gave a test every year, and very involved also in um, Eastern religions, especially Zen Buddhism hmm. for a number of years. Uh, so that was my life. I felt astrology was my calling. And then God intervened um, over the period of about nine or 10 months where there were just certain things that happened that led me actually to give astrology up. And then I started reading the Bible and it's really a long story. That's why I'm skipping over that. No, that's <laughs> and fine. Then, and then, um, it was while I was reading the Matthew chapter eight that I saw who Jesus really was and that moment, as soon as I saw who he was, I realized I had been going on the wrong path my whole life, that I was separated from God, that I needed forgiveness and I needed mm -hmm. 
Christ. I, you know, it all just became very clear to me. I had had some exposure younger going to churches, but I never, I never got it basically, you know, never got the gospel or anything. Um, I mean, I never understood it. So, um, at that point, of course, I I became a Christian and my life radically changed. Eventually, uh, I ended up doing talks here and there, and that eventually led, and writing some things, and that led to a full-time ministry. Uh, I went full-time in 1998, so I've been doing this 22 years, uh, Christian Answers for the New Age, and my main two purposes are, one, to reach out to people in the New Age and the occult who need to hear the truth uh, and love of Jesus Christ, and the second one is to educate people in the church about the new age. Yeah. So those are the two purposes. Let me, before we go on to Don, we're going to be talking about this a lot today. So maybe it would be helpful to just kind of define, because the word, the term has sort of fallen out of favor. It seems old fashioned, but what is new age? When you say that, what do you mean? Yes. I'm glad you asked that because yeah. Yeah, a lot of people just don't, I don't know, they don't either think of it in a wrong way or they don't know what it means. Or we Um, think that it's just like hippies in the 60s and no one really has to worry about that anymore. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's kind of the idea of it. And actually what's happened is the new age has gone mainstream and has become very um, polished because the new age is very adaptable. It's very fluid and it's constantly changing the way it appears and it constantly kind of uh, connects to different things in the culture. So uh, what happened is that it has gone into psychology, into the health field, into sports, into education. Um, and it is, it is really everywhere. And a lot of new age ideas are out there, but because they're mainstream, people don't recognize them as new age. And that's part of the problem. Okay. So then what is new age? Oh yeah. I didn't really tell you. <laughs> okay. The new age, um, the new age, um, I define as a network of beliefs, uh, with three main, um, origins, Eastern religions, uh, primarily Buddhism, uh, Taoism and Hinduism. Uh, the other area is Gnostic beliefs. Mm-hmm. So always seeing spirit as superior to matter. You know, our bodies are just temporary, that kind of thinking. Uh, and then the third one is the New Thought Movement, mm-hmm. which really was mainly in the 1800s into the early 1900s, but it's still around. And New Thought had some ideas that the New Age adopted. So there's a big overlap between those two areas, but they're still very distinct. So just quickly, New Thought, the three big New Thought churches are Christian Science, Unity, and Church of Religious Science, which now is called the Centers for Spiritual Living. Okay. They changed their name. <laughs> so those are the three big New Thought churches. And the New Thought has a big influence on this culture. Hmm, um, interesting. Yeah. Oh, man. We could. We may do a whole other podcast on I could on do this. a program on that. <laughs> yeah, for real. But for now, I want to give Don a chance to talk. Yes. So Don, tell okay. us just a little bit of your, of your own story and what, you, what brought you to be interested in this. Well, I, I grew up as an atheist, as, I, as you had mentioned. Uh, my father was an atheist, not a um, philosophical atheist. It just sort of was pragmatic for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there is no God, he could live sort of however he wanted to live, and he did. Um, and uh, my parents were divorced when I was eh, pre-teens, maybe. 
Uh, and then uh, when I was 15, I met a young lady who was a Christian, should not have dated me. I'm glad she did. Definitely shouldn't have married me. I'm glad she did that as well. Uh, but she had a grandfather who started praying for me, as it turns out, every day. I did not know this at the time. Uh, not only did I become a believer, but I would become a pastor. And so uh, for three years prior to our marriage and three years after our marriage, she prayed for me regularly and was buying Bibles and concordances and commentaries. And one day uh, after I came to the faith, my, after my son was born, he showed up to a family gathering with boxes of all his materials. Uh, and Joy was excited. I was a believer, but she said she's not going to be a pastor's wife because she can't do flannel graph and she doesn't <laughs> play piano. <laughs> so, Amen. I hear her on that. Yeah. So uh, uh, I was going to become a rich general contractor, I thought, and support missionaries. I was a construction. And so that was my goal in life. She met some Jehovah's Witnesses on a bowling league and just fell in love with them, but thought, okay, they believe some weird stuff, so I should check it out maybe. And, and so she asked me to help her. And one of the things I had learned after being uh, with her now for, you know, at that point about eight years, is if she wants something really badly, I might as well just give in early because she's going to get it anyway. <laughs> and so I agreed. And we started getting what we could on Jehovah's Witnesses. Went to our pastor. He didn't know a lot about them. Uh, so he self-educated and then started a helpline for Jehovah's Witnesses, pre-recorded helpline. That's how this all started out. Um, and over time, we got just hundreds of phone calls. They, we didn't talk to them. They just listened to the message, and, and it was non-threatening. Uh, and then we turned it into a live line, and there were about 50 recorded messages that all referred to ours. And so every day we were talking to Jehovah's Witnesses. Hmm. Uh, by and by, we started getting calls about other cult groups. And uh, so Joy said, I'll do Jehovah's Witnesses, you do everybody else. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, we started that, and then we started getting calls about a uh, Christian leader about seven miles from us, Bill Gothard. He had a oh, yes. large ministry. So we, we started getting calls, and we said, well, you know, we don't, he, we don't think he's a cult. He's uh, legalistic, maybe, but not a cult. Uh, and uh, then we started getting his material and looking at his material, and uh, tried to contact him because we thought, okay, maybe his followers are just misusing his material. That wasn't true. So we spent from probably 1993 until 2001 meeting with him, talking with him. Uh, talk, we had about 40 people watching what we were doing to make sure we were not inaccurate in our representations and ended up producing a book called uh, A Matter of Basic Principles, Bill Gothard and the Christian Life. I'm aware address, of the book. I have a friend right. that came out of that cult. Yeah. Really? Okay. So that's mm -hmm. to address his false teachings. Mm -hmm. So that's how that, and so in 1995, now at that point, we've been doing this for about five or six years. We decided to start Midwest Christian Outreach uh, just to kind of gather some others who are interested in reaching cults. Yeah. Uh, we had been to the Parliament of World Religions in 1993, and that was my first taste of meeting with witches and uh, pagans and Buddhists and Hindus. And I fell in love with meeting people who are so different in their beliefs and talking with them. Sure. And uh, realize that they are not opposed to talking with you as long as you're not like outlandish. Uh, but I do warn them ahead of time that I am so conservative. I can't turn left even when I'm driving. So they know <laughs> that. <laughs> well, let me, I, I don't want to cut you off, but I also it's do want to make sure we get to what we're going to really dig yep. into today. So we may have to have you on again sometime. 
Let's start. We're going to be talking about a lot of things today, but let's start with the Enneagram because it's what people are, they're going to click on this and be like, what are these crazies going to say about the Enneagram? So let's just start with that. Maybe you guys can walk us through a little bit of the history of the Enneagram. And I understand that it's apparently maybe not the ancient practice with Christian roots that some would have us believe that many Christians have, have come to believe. So maybe tell us a little bit about the history and then we'll take it from there. Okay, well, I'll start on that. And if I miss something, Don can mm-hmm. step in and fill <laughs> anything I, I miss or whatever. Uh, yeah, I, all of the Enneagram books out there, the Christian Enneagram books and, and, and the others that are non-Christian, and actually until recently, all the books on the Enneagram were New Age books, mm-hmm. um, and plus Richard Rohr's book. Um, all of them, or most of them at least say that it's ancient or probably ancient, and probably has Christian origins or does have Christian origins. <clears throat> and they mention different people that they think it came from. And actually it started around uh, probably 1916. So really only 104 years ago. And it started with a man named George Gurdjieff, who was a kind of a mystic esoteric teacher. Mm-hmm. He was Russian, interested Russian mystic. Huh? Russian mystic. Russian mystic. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, no, I think he was Armenian. Mm. Uspensky was Russian. Okay, I need gotcha. to check, though. Or he was Armenian-Russian. I can't remember. Anyway, he, um, he, was, uh, he, he supposedly traveled around and gathered different teachings from different spiritual leaders. And he gathered people around him that he taught. So he had a group following him. And it was, it was, according to Uspensky, his student, who later wrote books, uh, Gurdjieff didn't write about the Enneagram, but Uspensky did. And Uspensky wrote about the teachings of the Enneagram from Gurdjieff. And Gurdjieff was using the Enneagram as a diagram of, of what he said was the universe. Mm-hmm. All the laws in the universe you could put in the, in the Enneagram, which is- Let me just clarify something while you're talking. What you're talking about right now at this point is just the shape or the figure. It's yeah. none of the personality types. It's no. just the picture. Okay, continue. It was just a diagram with nine points. Uh, he even put the musical scale on the nine points. And he was into the idea of the law of three and the law of seven. Mm-hmm. And he played around with this and he felt you could- you could put anything in the diagram and the Enneagram would explain it. So that was his teaching. It also became a tool to explain how you um, awaken because he taught everybody's asleep and you have to awaken, um, you know, to the spiritual path. And then you get on the spiritual path and you become what he called the new man. And there were several rungs to the ladder that you had to go through. This is a very typical kind of esoteric, new age occult type teaching, very common. Mm-hmm. And so that was what it was. It had nothing to do with personalities. There were no types. Um, and then, of course, Uspensky wrote about it. And so for a long time, that's what the Enneagram was. And it was secret. And it was just by the followers of Gurdjieff and Uspensky. So it wasn't really known that well. And then um, a man named Oscar Chazo, mm-hmm. who was Bolivian, came across the Enneagram, and we don't know for sure how. There are different stories about it, but he came across it, 
he ha um, was he was from Bolivia, but he started a school in Chile, Arica, Chile, mm -hmm. and he started teaching the Enneagram. And he taught it as a way to dis to discover your pure essence, because he believed that when you're born, you have a pure essence. But as you grow, um, the, your experiences, your conditioning, what people say to you. Uh, gives you all these false ideas of who you are mm -hmm. and you cover it up with these false ideas. So what you do is you use the Enneagram to find your ego fixation, hmm. which is the, one, the, the thing that's most keeping you from the truth of who you are. And you, you use it to uncover the true self. So this was, this was how he taught it, which still is not about personality. Yeah. It's still not about that. And, it, and the basic idea of it is that you have this pure, essence that you need to uncover and this also is very new age type idea mm -hmm. so that was the enneagram he had a student named claudio naranjo this is where it starts to get real juicy folks <laughs> yeah it gets juicy yeah. chilean uh, psychiatrist who was into spiritual ideas he basically was like a, a an early new ager and he um got the enneagram teaching from uh, Ichazo, um, Naranjo also was into using psychedelic drugs or hallucinogens in order to have spiritual type experiences. He, that was his main thing. He did research on that. That was like his main focus. So he takes the Enneagram and he starts teaching it around 1970, 71 at a place called Esalen in Big Sur, California, uh, which Many in your audience probably don't know what it is. <laughs> no, but they, after you describe it, they might want to go there because it's... I, I, I hope they don't. <laughs> I, when I've been describing this to my friends, I call it orgy town. Yeah. Like, you, you tell us what it really is. Yeah. yeah it, I That's think pretty it's, accurate. It's probably toned down now. It's just a, another new age type place, but it was very edgy. And there were people there doing the spiritual trips with drugs. There were, there were people doing experimental psychology like Gestalt and screen therapy, I think, started there. There, were, there was just a gathering of all kinds of people with these very out of mainstream fringe ideas. And, and Naranjo was there teaching the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. And he's the one who started teaching it with the types, mm -hmm. which he later said he got via automatic writing. Automatic writing is a form of spirit contact. It's like channeling a spirit, except you're doing it by allowing your hand to be directed by a spirit. It's a known thing. I knew about automatic writing when I was in the new age. I even tried it a few times. Um, it didn't work for me, <laughs> but um, it, you know, I knew about it. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's considered a real thing in the new age and the occult. And so, that's how he says he got most of the information for the types. I wonder if this might be a good space to, to play the video clip we have of, because I know people will come back and say, well, you're just saying that because you don't like it, but there's actual video of him both admitting that he claimed it was ancient when it wasn't sort of to trick people and also right. this automatic writing thing. So Evan, well, do you maybe want to? Right, there's one other thing I probably want to oh, add yeah. just quickly here, uh, because it made a pit stop just before these two got a hold of it with a guy named Rodney Collin, uh, who took the Enneagram and he tried to attach uh, some astrological symbols to it and make it work that way. That never really took off, but that was something it was used for prior to uh, uh, 
Echazo and Naranjo mm -hmm. getting it. That was 1954. So it's it's been around. <laughs> yeah, but not back into the ancient series no. No. hundreds and hundreds, in, in hundreds fact, of years in ago. In fact, one, one of the things that you'll hear uh, Naranjo say is they made it up. Yeah. Uh, that it is not agent. They made it up. Yeah. It All strikes right. me too that real fast, I'm going to play the video, but real fast, it strikes me that if you try to put this into the ancient church, that, that the ancient church actually would like thinking about our personalities just wasn't on their agenda. Yeah, right? exactly. You know what? That's exactly what I thought when I saw all this Enneagram stuff and they were saying like, uh, uh, you know, someone in the fourth century was using it. I thought they didn't have the concept of personality mm -hmm. then. No. Mm -hmm. They didn't even have the con. That's a modern concept mm. from psychology. No, and, and in fact, as you hear us say, uh, like Christopher Huertz in his book, uh, and, and others do the same thing, they say, okay, we can find it back in Babylon. We can bring it forward to the Sufis, and we can find it in Judaism, but none of that's true. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So what we're going to play, so people should be able to see on the screen, we're sharing the screen now. Um, there's a gentleman in a purple shirt, and that's what's his name? Naranjo. Naranjo, and he is the psych Brazilian. No, uh, uh, he's Chilean. Chilean. Chilean psychologist who kind of popularized, in many respects, the, the Enneagram. And so uh, I might just talk over it a little bit. So I might just say this is Aranjo speaking or something. Okay. We're going to jump into this video clip, though. It's about one minute and 23 seconds into a conversation he's having with three other people. Oscar Chasso, who I learned it from, uh, he. At, at the Hello, time, he used to say he yeah. had learned it from a very ancient source, from a Sum Sumerian Babylonians. We know that to not be true. And uh, yeah. lately, he's been uh, s claiming that he got it directly from a higher source and not from a historical source, uh, from inspiration, you know, from revelation, that is his word. That's probably and, closer to the truth. Yes, yes, I, I, tr I trust it. But um, I, I get a lot of stuff from. I'm serious. I get a lot of a lot of my information from higher authorities, yes. and so do you. Yes, yes. And we know that, and we trust this. Yes, and uh, just like Oscar did not make a difference between what was his finding from inside of when, when he got from higher authority and what he got from word-to-mouth uh, teachings, right. which was negligible, uh, just as he didn't uh, make a distinction, I adopted the same style. So when mm -hmm. people learned me, heard me, they thought I was talking about something that comes from Babylonian origins through Oscar Ichasso to me. Well, yeah, because oh, yeah. they trust that more. They, they, they're being yeah. scholars. They I thought trust it, the would, it makes sense. Route. Yeah. Actually, when I was, cho I chose to do that intentionally, mm -hmm. and I was remembering a recommendation of Oscar Wilde, who yeah. said, "If you want an idea of yours to become famous, attribute it to a famous person." That's right. <laughs> so <laughs> I was more or interested become in become famous. <laughs> so at uh, at the conference, I told them I had made up this tale that all this came from millennia ago well, and that this information came from the Sufis. Yes. I told him that actually Oscar Richardson had not described any of the Enneotypes either. Actually in the 
uh, seven months we spent with him. He devoted about six hours to talk about the Enneagram, but he never came to describe any one of the types. That was right. that came from Enrique Chile. Enrique Chile, yeah. 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 So that yeah. came from my own observations, but mostly from automatic writing. It automatic came, writing? Yeah, it came to me through automatic writing. What did? Uh, the, the specific information and it's any types. Ab, ab, about any types, which yes. I then verified through observation, right. because and I was surrounded by people right. I was teaching and exploring with. And I had <clears throat> I had friends in Erika who told me essentially the same story. Yeah. That John there Hale. was no mention of no others besides. You yes. said there was no mention of any types except from you. Yes. Okay. So. I think it, we should talk a little bit about this automatic writing thing because I already know that some people are going to respond and say, well, isn't that how the authors of the Bible wrote the Bible? Um, and I'm sure you've gotten that uh, line of reasoning as well. So maybe since you used to be in this world, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the difference between what he's talking about and what the authors of our scripture are talking about. Yeah, automatic writing is you make yourself receptive to a spirit. And there are different ways you can do that, usually through some form of meditation. And uh, this is something psychics also do and mediums do. Uh, they get really good at it where they don't have to work at it as much, but you do something to make yourself open. Uh, and what's happening is you are not in control and you're not thinking about what's being written. You're just allowing your hand to move. And uh, so you're really, you're, even though the spirit is controlling, you're not really a part of it. Whereas the biblical authors who were writing um, by the spirit of God, and we don't understand it completely because this is something God did that, you know, he doesn't really explain how he did it. But we know that they got, uh, the words, uh, what to say through the Holy Spirit. And they, but yet their personalities and style still come through. Mm -hmm. And vocabulary. It was their vocabulary, personality, style. Hmm. Right. Vocabulary. And so that's something you can see. You can see they, they're, they aren't completely erased. They are still there. Oh, that's a good distinction. Okay. Yeah. And God, gets the words through, but it doesn't, but not by completely eradicating who they are. And so, uh, and, and it's not like they're in some kind of trance yeah. you know, being controlled by something, you know, they're still probably just like you and I are talking, they're still mm -hmm. able to think and, and know, and they know what they're writing. Mm -hmm. So that is, they're really two completely different things. The, well, the and, and, and Many times what we have in the prophetic writings is uh, the prophet would say, I saw God. So he's recording my experience. I saw God high and lifted up. Mm -hmm. He said to me, and then they write down what he said, quote, and right. this is what he said. Yeah. Uh, so you have much less of this sort of uh, idea of uh, just moving them along unknowingly. That's just, that's just not present in any of the texts that we have. Right, they got direct revelations to right. the prophets. Not, not to get into a tangent, but the author of the Quran, well, Muhammad, would, he was illiterate. He said he was illiterate. Would that be more like automatic writing, or is it hard to say? No, because he actually never re wrote anything. Yeah. Uh, okay. He had others who took notes of his 
talks okay. and things like that. And then that was what was recorded. Okay. Let me ask, I'm curious, do you think that, well, first of all, do you think that automatic writing is real or, or do you, and, and do you think that um, Naranjo really uh, used that practice or do you think that he is saying that to earn credibility or is there any way to know? I think it's hard to know. I think given his lifestyle and what I know about him, it's not hard for me to believe that he actually did automatic writing, especially since he did all these drug trips. I believe that drug trips can introduce you to um, basically it's, it's fallen angels is what mm-hmm. you're right. getting so, contact with. <laughs> so if, if we're all Orthodox Christians and we would say that it's not good to open ourselves to automatic writing because it introduces us to the spirit world and Holy Spirit is done you know, we believe, I think we would all say the canon is closed. Anyway, we're not getting more biblical passages. Uh, so then it's what, you know, the demonic realm, I think we yes. could say that would be participating in this automatic writing. Okay. Kind of like a Ouija board or something. Yeah. So, well, why, why, are, why would demons care? Why, why would demons create the Enneagram? It's just an innocent uh, tool to help us know. And by the way, these one through nine, these are personality types and each one. I mean, maybe we should describe a little bit what, what the Enneagram okay. is and why is it bad? Because well, you see, let, 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 let me give you, let me give you a quote. First, I want to mention something on automatic writing is this is not the first time we've had automatic writing introduced as a spiritual tool for anybody. You have Helen Shookman who through automatic writing put something together called a course in miracles. Uh, very popular, very widely sold, and Marianne Williamson picked up on that and started doing her teaching on that. So uh, automatic writing is something that is extent in our culture today, used by people to mislead. Second thing is, I would say, why would demons do that? To distract. Mm -hmm. They don't really care if you believe in God. They just want you to distract from a true knowledge of who he is. Right. Well, and I would add, and we're going to get into, we only stopped at Naranjo. We're going to keep going down the, the path of who shared it with who. But at some point when you start reading some of the writings of some of the modern people that are into this, um, you realize that it's, it's to distract and to lie about right. the true nature of things, especially things like, are we really sinful? Do we really need a a rescuer, a redeemer? Do we really need God? Um, And I think ultimately, if we can have things skewed ever so slightly to not need God, well, then the enemy has done a pretty good job. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's do this. But one one of the questions that was just, that Evan just asked is, uh, you know, we have this tool, it's just telling you about who you are, your personality, whatever. That is actually not true. Hmm. Uh, One of the premier Enneagram authors, Christopher Hortz, writes in his book, uh, the sacred Enneagram, uh, and he's, he's going to name someone called Russ Hudson, who mm-hmm. is a New Ager, so yeah, right. be aware of who he's quoting. Uh, as Russ Hudson frequently emphasizes, type isn't a type of person, but a path to God. So the nine Enneagram numbers are not personality types in the sense of this is why I do what I do. These are different nine different paths for you to get to God and you, what you're doing is getting to God uh, by the realization that you never sinned and have never been separated from God. So it's a path to, to God, uh, to your true self, they call it, which never sinned, never has been separated from God. Mm. You have just created a false belief about yourself thinking you're a sinner. Mm. Well, what's interesting is that it's a path to God 
by way of looking inside yourself, right? That's the other famous book is the, the road back to right. you. It's like, look right. inward right. because the divine right. is already there. There's no, right. we don't yeah. need anything outside of ourselves, but, but right. again, getting ahead of ourselves. Um, I want to, I want to continue in the history of the Enneagram because the next kind of, I mean, path takes us to Richard Rohr, which we've got to talk about because yeah. he's kind of inextricably linked to the core tenets of the Enneagram. So um, maybe you can talk about how it got to Rohr and then some of well, the examples you, of his. You had mentioned a sale. And if you don't mind, Marsha, I'd like to pick this one up just briefly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Richard Rohr. Uh, yeah. Richard Rohr. Uh, because I have a personal interest in part of this story. Um, he got it from a guy named Bob Oaks who picked it up at a sale. And Bob Oaks is a Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. uh, after he got enamored with it, he started teaching it to newly minted Roman Catholic priests. One of them is Richard Rohr, Franciscan. One of them is Mitch Pacwa, a Jesuit, at, at around the same time. Mitch Pacwa had, you know, tinkered with it for several years. And then he started realizing every time I do this test, I come up with a different personality type. So something's not really right here. Something's a little hinky. And he started doing some investigating on it and came to the realization as he tracked it down that it is occult, new age, and dangerous. So he wrote a book in 1992 uh, uh, called, uh, Roman Ca called Catholics in a New Age, How Good People Are Being uh, Deceived into New Age, uh, Enneagram, and Jungian Psychology. Pretty interesting thing. Joy and I read it. We knew, we knew, uh, we knew Mitch and uh, uh, had done some things with him. And so we read the book and we thought, okay, this is interesting. Never be an evangelical church. We don't really have to worry about that. Until 2011. Now, Richard Rohr took it. He didn't abandon it. He kept teaching it and teaching it and teaching it. And then in 2011, Marsha can pick this up. She started writing on it. Yes. I, um, and I want to just say quickly, yes, automatic writing is a real thing. <laughs> yeah. I had spirit guides as an astrologer. Hmm. And all my what friends that mean? astrologers had spirit guides. What is that? Who, what's a spirit guide? Spirit guide is in the new age. You think a spirit guide is a benevolent entity and people have different ideas of what this entity is, but on another plane of existence. And this guide is there to help you grow spiritually and, or, and sometimes to give you information. So psychics and mediums uh, get information from their spirit guides. And, um, this is a very, very real thing. I experienced it. My friends talked about it. It's, it's just very real. And these um, are, of course, fallen angels. And so I just want to, I wanted to say that because I don't want people to think this is just something that's fantasy. It is well, a real thing. And didn't, isn't uh, Ichazo, that's the guy that came before Naranjo, didn't he talk about talking with spirits and give yes. them names and the names were not holy spirit no he, Mark, michael the archangel right metatron, no. and, Me metatron and the green katoob yeah and and metatron is an archangel in the kabbalah mm -hmm. um, so you know he there were these spirits and he also claimed his group was guided by an interior master so Ooh. he was very what does that mean spirit that some kind of spirit was guiding or overseeing their group and their teachings, which was probably wow. true. That's probably true. Probably um, and so this kind of influence is definitely there. It's still there. Neil Donald Walsh, who wrote Conversations with God about maybe 20 years ago that were huge bestsellers, 
claimed he, he was getting answers from God. His hands started moving when he asked questions. This kind of thing is very, very common in the new age. It is, mm. it is just, and it's accepted um, as a good thing, of course. But now as a Christian, I understand the real source of this. So what's happening here is very dangerous ideas are coming in that look good. They look beneficial. They may even look somewhat Christian. But they are going to lead to dis- they are going to be deceptive and lead to um, something false. So, or they're going to undermine God or undermine Christ, undermine God's word in some way. It, it will end up attacking God and Christ because they always do. That's that's what they always go for. That's the target. Mm-hmm. I'm not very familiar with the Enneagram, so I'm going to ask dumb questions. But just just to put a summary on it, right? So like a lot of people think of the Enneagram as a Christian version of the Myers-Briggs. And what you're saying is that it's far more like a pathway to get to your true self, which is not sinful. And so if you understand who you are, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I always heard by the way that like one through three was associated with the sin of anxiety, like four through six is, is anger, and then seven through nine is whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, so anyway, you're one of those numbers and you have these qualities. And if you work on yourself, so it's kind of like self-help, you can, you can get to that path. And so it's more well, like... But those, those are false beliefs about yourself, okay. right? That is how you have developed your false self. So if you can come to grips with that, that isn't really you. That is a mm. false idea of who you are. Right. Then you can embrace your true self, which isn't sinful. Right. Those are like, and sometimes they're called sin patterns. And that's the thing about the Enneagram, since it's, there's no model for the Enneagram, since it doesn't, it isn't based on anything objective or any empirical data or research, it can be molded into anything. And that's exactly what happened when it got into the new age. It just took off because new agers are very good with stuff like this. They're very inventive and they just, you know, it just grew and they added all kinds of things to it. Something called the diamond approach, which is based on this mystical teacher um, and something called the narrative approach. Hmm. And they had different ways of teaching it. Uh, and Helen Palmer was the big new ager who brought it into the new age. And that was in she's the eighties when I was also in- a psychic. She's also a psychic. Mm-hmm. She was a, actually a psychic. Yeah. She doesn't call herself that anymore. You can find her on YouTube. She's still yeah. on there. And you can find videos of her talking about the Enneagram. Um, so anyway, so what happened is um, Richard Rohr wrote his book around 19, or was published around 1991 in English. And as that, that, that was the decade that what is what we called the emergence were beginning to form. The emergence were uh, people like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren and um, Tony Jones and some other people who were ideally wanting to reach the unchurched generation. But what happened is a lot of them started to drift from sound doctrine and drift from the authority of God's word. And, and a lot of them just went further and further until really they barely look Christian anymore. Like Rob Bell. I mean, Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's so far out there. Um, And these people became uh, the progressives and the progressive church or progressive Christianity, which now is growing by leaps and bounds, uh, was, was embraced Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr had, and I don't know how long Rob Bell knew Richard Rohr, but he has admitted that he was influenced by uh, Rohr for several years. 
probably going back maybe even to 2005, 2006, maybe before that. Well, probably um, before that, because he also influenced, but, uh, he also influenced the uh, worship leader at Willow Creek, who was at Rob Bell's church. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, okay. Okay. So, yeah, so there was a big influence there already. And then as the progressives kind of uh, started catching on, they do the conferences and they introduce the Enneagram at the conferences because uh, they got it from Roar. And so I noticed that it was at these progressive church conferences. And that's when I wrote my first article, 2011. That was nine years ago. I put down the history. I put down what I could about it to try to expose it for what it was. Hmm. And it's, my article was called the Enneagram GPS Gnostic Tool to the Self, Gnostic Path to the Self. And I thought, well, there, all done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got the information there. Nobody's going to go near this. <laughs> and of course, that sadly was not true because all of a sudden, when the Road Back to You came out in 2016, and they did book tours, it started catching on. And then Chris Horitz did tours even to seminaries in 2017 with his book. Now, it's very important for people to know that Suzanne Stabile, mm -hmm. who wrote The Road Back to You with Ian Cron, and Chris Horitz, who wrote The Sacred Angel, were both mentored for years by Richard Rohr. That is key mm -hmm. because what that tells us is that they apparently have taken on at least some, if not all, of Richard Rohr's beliefs, which right. I know we're going to get into what his yeah. beliefs are. But, um, and Ian Cron is a close associate of Richard Rohr, and Ian Cron actually has called himself a progressive. And mm -hmm. I think he's even more than that. And I hope we talk about perennialism, because I think he's a Oh, we're going to. Yeah. So, one, one, one other name that we should mention in all of this is Beth McCord, yeah, now, she wasn't mentored by Richard Rohr, but she was trained all by New Agers. Six New Age teachers. Six New Age she teachers. She had on her website, and and now those names are now removed. Because mm. I did screenshots when I saw them, and did some posts on it, and then when I went back, it they were gone. Yeah. So um, that's the thing is that because she said she'd been doing doing the Enneagram for fifteen years or something, and I thought immediately, well, she must have had a New Age teacher. Because there mm -hmm. weren't any Christian teachers 15 years ago for the Enneagram, right. only New Agers. And so, um, so when you look at it, you see what, what this really is. It's something from the New Age via Roar, who's heretical, into the progressives who are not really on the same page of sound doctrine. <laughs> and then it gets into the church with students or, or people mentored by Richard Roar. Mm -hmm. uh, or people taught by by New Agers. Um, yeah. Horitz had three New Age teachers. So aside from Beth, it seems like everybody that is doing writing on this that's really making its way into the church is somehow linked with, was discipled by, is into Richard Ward. By the way, all of this stuff can be found in their book. I have to promote the book. Uh, <laughs> I read this whole thing in like two days. Richard Ward and the Enneagram, Enneagram Secret by the, the folks that you see on your screen or you're hearing coming through your podcast speakers, but um, so all of that's in there. And, and it's done in a way that it's not just a boring uh, genealogy, as it were, um, because every single step along the way, there are problems. But okay, so Richard Rohr has, it's, it's just so linked with the theology behind the Enneagram that I think we have to talk about him. I don't think we can get away from talking about him if we're going to really assess what we think about the Enneagram. So let's talk a little bit about 
um, some terms that are associated with him and what the problem is, um, panentheism, perennialism, non-duality. Just take it away and tell us about Richard Rohr, and then we'll, we'll show the clip. Okay. Um, yeah, I, you know, for whatever reason, I, I mean, I'm sure the Lord was involved. I, I started noticing Richard Rohr um, <clears throat> online, and I caught this uh, video of him around 2013, where he is being interviewed by a priest and the video isn't that long. I think it's like 24 minutes or something, 23 minutes. And it's called the cosmic Christ. Mm -hmm. And so that, that phrase caught my attention. I thought this sounds so new agey. So I listened to it and he was saying things there that I couldn't quite believe. So I listened to it again. I thought I must be, I must be hearing him wrong, <laughs> but I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so I actually listened to that interview. I think, I don't know how many times, probably a dozen times. Um, and I did a Facebook post on it. And then I started looking into Richard Rohr. I knew that he was having conferences and he had invited, like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren spoke at his conferences. He had Buddhists speak at his conferences. Richard Rohr runs the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I should say that. And he has all kinds of classes there and teachers there. Ian Cron has taught there. Susan, Suzanne Stabile has taught there. Chris and his wife, Filena Hertz, have taught there. Um, and he's very, very active. And the school has a, a lot of, uh, or the center has a lot of followers. Richard Rohr, who is a Franciscan friar and technically Roman Catholic, however, does not even have Roman Catholic beliefs. Right. He believes that the first incarnation of Christ was creation. Mm -hmm. He believes that everybody is in creation because we're all, we're, we're in, everybody's in Christ because we're all in creation and everybody's connected. So we're all connected to, to the Christ who is not the same as Jesus. So I'm going to get to that. Sin is not an issue for Richard Rohr. Mm -hmm. Sin is something he says that happened a long time ago between the Tigris and the Euphrates. That's in his book, The Universal Christ. Uh, so sin's not an issue. He believes that Jesus died on the cross, but not to atone for sins. He died on the cross. The Roman Empire didn't like him. Um, he also says it was, it was suffering. Suffering is a part of reality. Mm -hmm. um, it was to show his love. He has all these other reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and he says that since everybody is in Christ, the issue is not salvation. That's not what we need. You know, we need to, what we need to do is understand the true reality. He doesn't put it like this, but I'm paraphrasing or I'm, I'm putting it in my own words. The true reality is that God and Christ are in creation and we are in them and we're all part of something together and we're all evolving towards a point of perfection. Um, he says that Jesus was the Christ when Jesus was alive. Okay, he won't deny that Jesus was Christ. However, at the resurrection, the universal Christ mm -hmm. was sort of released out into creation. And it's the universal Christ power or spirit. I'm not sure exactly how he puts it, but he says that Christ is drawing everything in creation to a point of perfection. And Jesus becomes the historical man who was kind of the vehicle for the Christ. Um, and he'll, he says things like Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote about Jesus, mm -hmm. 
but John and Paul wrote about the universe. Right. Right. Yeah, this is in the clip. It is, it is in the clip. Now, mm -hmm. just to, to clarify a couple things, panentheism, which is a term you threw out there, yeah. is the idea which she's explaining that um, God is bigger than the universe, but the universe is God's body. And so when she talks about we are all evolving, God is evolving as well. So in classic panentheism, we are creating God as he's creating us. So he's bigger than the universe, but he lives in the universe. The universe is his body. Point he of also, clarification. Uh -huh. Is panentheism the same or connected to process theology? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes, that, that is what it is, same thing. Okay. A lot of neo-Orthodox um, people were panentheists. Right. It used to be kind of a minor view. Alfred North Whitehead and others held the view, yeah. but it wasn't popular. Uh, just appealed to really, really smart people for some reason. <laughs> and and the problem with that, just to, I, for our listeners that are like, well, that doesn't sound so bad, the universe, blah, blah, blah. But one of the problems, one of the many, many problems is that it doesn't make God outside of or greater than the universe, right? I or mean, that's one of the from, big, right. what's yeah. that? He's or se or from. separate from. Right, right, right. And that's yeah. kind of one of the big apologetic tools we use is we say that if God created the universe, then he must be outside of things like time and space and matter. And, and we can't say that if you're a panentheist. And so you also lose God's bigness and his creative power and, and so many things. Oh, yeah, right. it's definitely, it undermines the nature of God completely. Right. And yeah. what I say is, because a lot of people respond and say, but isn't God omnipresent? Mm -hmm. And I say, yes, God is, because the Bible tells us that God is omnipresent, but he is distinct. I like the word distinct. Oh, yeah. Right. The word distinct from his creation. Mm -hmm. So right. that's the difference. In panentheism, he's not, and he's right. kind of part of everything. Um, and I want to say it's not pantheism. Right. That might be confusing right. people, that word. Pantheism is God is identical to creation. Mm -hmm. and so it's a little more extreme. But that makes panentheism more deceptive because it can sound it can sound okay if you don't really examine what the person is saying. Definitions are so critical. Yeah. Perennialism yeah. is another one, and that's the yeah. idea that all religions have the truth about God at their core. Yeah. So there's really no difference in being a Christian or being a Hindu or being a Buddhist. No. Uh, in fact, Brian McLaren uses that to say, I don't try to bring a Buddhist to Christianity. I just want them to be the best Buddhist they can for God. Mm -hmm. Like a follower of Christ who's also a Buddhist at the same time. Correct. Um, can I make a couple of just clarif clarifying points? You, um, Sarah, you mentioned um, process theology, and, and mm -hmm. that's the same thing essentially as open theism, right? You know, the idea that God doesn't, no, uh, not quite. Open theism okay. has more to do with what uh, God allows himself to know about the future and process theology is more about God sort of being perfected alongside us. That's a super right. okay. reductive. Um, okay. Yeah. All my theologians would be like, you said that wrong. Uh, okay. Go Google well, it. That, that's pretty close. In fact, there's a kind of a famous drawing of a hand drawing a hand and they're in exactly the same place. That's kind of what we're talking about here with panentheism. Aren't yeah. some, um, Don, are some open theists that you know of panentheists? Yes. I think sometimes you can find both. Yeah, but, sure. they are, right. but they are different concepts. And perennialism is something I have really been looking into a lot this past year. And I have, I have even read from this book called The Underlying Religion, which is essays by, uh, by perennialists. 
And I've written two articles that are just brand new on my website on two books by David Benner, who's mm -hmm. published by IVP and whose books are used on Christian campuses. He is yeah. a perennialist. He's a master teacher at Richard Rohr School. So um, I have those two articles if people are interested. But perennialism, like Don said, is you have the different religions. They don't believe in combining religions. They're right. not for erasing religions and having just one. They believe having different religions is good because then it fits with the cultures that it comes from. And you can be in the religion that best, best suits you or is going to be the most suitable path for you. So they don't want to take that away from people. They think it's fine that there's all these different religions, but they teach that at their core, they are the same. And so what they say is there's the, I don't know how to say it, EXO, exoteric, exoteric teachings, which are the outward teachings look different. The esoteric teachings mm. are the inner teachings and that's where they, they come together. There's even a chart I put on a post I did the other day. It's like a big triangle and it has lines coming down from it. And it has all the different religions down here, like, you know, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, you know, yeah. Christianity, et cetera, all down here. And then, so the lines are going up. And so down here where you see them all apart and separate, it says exoteric. And then as they come to a point, it has a line across and it says esoteric. Okay, so that's how they get that's how they get away from because one of the automatic questions would be, well, the religions themselves don't say that they say the same things. Right. If you get a, a good Muslim and a good Christian in the same room, they're gonna say, No, we don't agree. We can still be nice to each other, but that's okay, so that's how they would answer that. They'd say, Well, at the end of the day, the sort of primal essence is the same, but you're like sort of thinking about it differently on the outside. I do want to play you know I've gotta say this oh. how you get to that core inner truth. This is important. Okay. You get there through mysticism, through altering your thinking through contemplative practices. And in fact, Richard Rohr said, the reason you do contemplative practices is to unlearn what mm -hmm. you know. You You'll hear that in the clip. Mm -hmm. You need to Let's set aside everything and then you can have your mind is open to these new teachings. And that's what David Benner says too. So this is the idea, and this is also a new age idea that for you to understand the real truth of who you are, or what reality is, you have to set aside what you know and you have to open yourself to these new ideas. It's just classic esoteric occult new age teachings. Classic. It's exactly what Yoda said to Luke. You yes. must unlearn what you have learned. And I, I am only half joking because you know that Jediism is a like official religion. I know. Um, and, and there are people who, I mean, and, well, you know that, that George Lucas essentially taught a lot of, what was his name? George uh, Marshall or. Uh, Joseph Campbell. He, Joseph Campbell. He was a yes. Taoist. He was a yeah. Taoist. And, and uh, everything you have in Star Wars is from Taoism pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I have articles on Star Wars on my website. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's actually not a joke. I mean, oh. there, there are people who, whose religious um, convictions start to sound a lot like the force. Um, and it's bizarre, but can I just real fast, because I'm y'all are, y'all all know so much more about this than I, I'm just the guy like that's trying to think about what the listener who's just on the edge of this yeah. might. Well, we need you for that reason. Okay. Yes. So I just want to make two distinctions that like why why is this a problem that's the question i want to keep answering right like wh why can't we take this and add it to christianity so one distinction would be that christianity makes a 
very clear, very sharp, very strong distinction between creation and creator. And, and Rohr and New Agers generally confuse those two things through mm-hmm. and entheism, which literally means God in the world or God in everything, but y'all give a better definition. Okay, so that's one problem we would say, right? Is that so, safe to say so far, right? There's not that clear distinction between creator and creation uh, that we the, that we actually want to, that way, if we can erase that distinction, we can be more like the creator, I guess, or we mm-hmm. can become part of the creative process. But anyway, um, second would be the, the sin issue, mm-hmm. which, we, which is that um, our true self, and this goes back to the Enneagram too, but our true self is good. And what Orthodox Christianity would say is our true self is broken in sin, fallen in sin, dead in trespasses and sin, et cetera. And so the problem uh, that, that God solves through the cross and resurrection is the sacrificial death, life death of, of Christ for us. That, that, okay. And so that's, that's the danger is that we can begin to, we lose those distinctions. I'd actually be curious to pick your brain maybe at a later date about, Eastern Orthodoxy, because as, say, uh, Hank Hanegraaff became Orthodox, this conversation came up about how the Orthodox do not have a strong view of uh, original sin, but they actually see the fall as a wounding of the human person mm. and r- religion as more medicinal, whereas we have a, in the West a, a de- an understanding that it's death and like new life and new resurrection. So it's Maybe not something that y'all have studied, but I've encouraged. No, but Rohr does talk a lot about the Eastern Church, and he often mm-hmm. says the only people who have really understood all of this, mm-hmm. meaning what he's teaching, are the mystics and the Eastern Church. Oh, interesting. So he, okay. he, will, he says the, it was a tragedy when the East and Western Churches split in 10, I think, mm-hmm. 54 or something. Mm-hmm. He also says we have divine DNA. Mm-hmm. He says that. So. Well, I've been listening to a lot of Richard Rohr because I know that when we when we talk to people about this, they're going to say, well, have you actually listened to him? Actually, have you actually read him? And so I've been listening to a series that he's doing um, called Alternative Orthodoxy, oh, which yeah. I find to be a hilarious oxymoron. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's go ahead and play the clip. This is just a, a tip of the iceberg of the alternative orthodoxy. And then I think I do want to get into, well, can't we just separate that stuff out from the Enneagram and still use it? So go ahead and play that. In general, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are about Jesus. John is about Christ. And the reason we have so misused and misinterpreted John's gospel is this is the eternal archetypal Christ talking. He can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about this mystery, this amalgam of matter and spirit, which is the way for everybody that you discover spirit in this material universe. That was true for the native religions, was true for Judaism, was certainly apparent in Hinduism, if you've ever been to India, where gods are everywhere, the sacred is everywhere. They're always anointing Everything, especially the male and female genitals, even in the temples, it's all sacred. It's sort of shocking for us prudish Christians. Uh, This is sacred too, you know. It's all one sacred universe. But we got a lot of unlearning to do. And that's why we teach contemplation, because contemplation is mostly unlearning. I don't know which thing we want to start with, but it did remind me there's one other thing, two other things I want to add to the list to define 
under sort of Richard Rohr's mystic teachings. One is that he talks about that there is no sacred or secular. There is no holy or profane. Everything is sacred. Everything is holy, which I have some questions about when roaches come in my house because that does not feel very sacred. But the other thing that I'm hoping you guys can help us understand is this idea of non-duality. Because I think that's his... And he'll say things like, uh, I just heard him say on the podcast the other day, I would never have someone read John for the first thing that they read from the Bible because they haven't gotten to a non-dualistic consciousness yet. And so they're not going to understand it. And I guess dualism to him in that sense is making distinctions. I don't know. Maybe you guys can answer yeah. that a little bit better. Dualism is making distinctions, but I think the way he uses it is, is as a, a criticism of, he, he likes to say, you know, people people in the West or Western Christianity is so dualistic. It's all about who's in and who's out. Yes, inclusivity um, and yeah. yeah. And so to him, non-dualism is inclusive. And so non-dualism is including everything. You aren't judging, you know, everything. And in panentheism, everything is all connected. And the divine, the reason everything's sacred is because God is in everything. So everything is sacred. Even, even the ro- he would have to say the roaches are sacred, you know, right? because there really is not, not even good or evil. There only is experience. Right. Yeah. Because if you don't have distinctions, you can't make a distinction between good and evil. And of course, and Roar does not like the idea of Jesus being judge. And he has said in one video, one reason that he talks, he talks about the Franciscans a lot. And he says, and whether they Franciscans as a group believe all this or not, I don't know. But he says, well, we Franciscans don't like the book of revelation because it's so militant. Well, what happens in the book of revelation, it shows Jesus as judge of the wicked. And he does not like that because he doesn't like the idea of judgment. So for him, I think, because duality and non-duality, I guess they're complicated philosophical concepts. And and really, but non-duality would mean no distinctions. But he tends to treat it as, you know, that, but more like we can't judge. We can't say this is good and this is better and this is worse, you know. So that way he he's able to promote his ideas because his ideas are go against what the Bible teaches about judgment. Let me move us on just because we're already at an, Oh, go ahead, Don, go ahead. I just want to say for, for Evan and those who would think like Evan, why is all of this important? (laughs) Because all of this underlies what the Enneagram is, is the gift that keeps on giving. It has a (laughs) theology. It has a view of God. It has a view of human nature. It has a view of sin and salvation, all built into that underneath of it. And if you don't ask the questions, you will buy into the deception unwittingly. Mm. That's good. So that, yeah, that takes us into, can't we just kind of remove the stuff we don't like, keep God, the God of scripture central in our own beliefs and borrow from these other religious traditions? Um, I, I say traditions, one. but you know, what? I, I, I have to answer that one. This is mine. I just taught on this this past weekend. In the Old Testament, we have something called the Ten Commandments. Now, I, we don't have time to, to really flesh all of this out, but let's start with just one thing. Uh, Jesus was asked three times, we have this recorded in the Gospels, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What you don't know is that is not in the Ten Commandments. That's like an overall description of the Ten Commandments and everything else that follows. Now, what does it say? Uh, uh, I am the Lord your God, you know, no other gods before me. How many gods? No yeah. other gods before me. About 50 years ago, two weeks from now, 50 years ago, my wife and I had an event that we'll be celebrating uh, wherein I was asked this question, will you uh, basically abandon all other women, forsake all others for her? Now, can I say, yes, I will forsake all others for her, but I can you know, date a few times here and there. It's not a big deal. I mean, I'm not, I'm not committing to anything, right? We can just sort of add some different relationships along the way. And the problem is you drift into replacing without ever overtly denying your marriage, replacing or adding stuff into your bag of relationships. Israel did that over and over, yeah. which we deal with in the book, Richard Warren Enneagram Secret. It isn't just saying we don't like the Enneagram. We're going, here's the biblical teaching on this issue. And then we address the issue. So, no, you cannot just add stuff in from false religious culture because it makes you feel more spiritual. That is sin and rejecting what God has commanded us. Well, and we see in the New Testament, Paul addresses this, this syncretistic Absolutely. idea, right, where people are trying right. to hold their newfound Christianity that they love and they're excited about, but they also want to keep goddess worship at play or whatever. And Paul's like, don't do that, you know? Right, right, right. I, I'll just, I kind of stop off and see the uh, temple prostitutes on the way to church. It's not a big yeah. deal. We've sort of always done that. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You can't have them both. Um, I want to get into a little bit more of this, can we still use it idea, but first take all the theology out of it. Are there any non-theological reasons why you think the Enneagram is a harmful tool? Yeah, it has absolutely no basis in anything <laughs> valid. It has, there's no such, it doesn't come from psychology. It doesn't come from research. It doesn't come from studies of personality um, done in, you know, a scientific manner. Mm -hmm. It's just this kind of ad hoc tool that developed through different people doing spirit contact. And then Richard Rohr adding on ideas that it was ancient and Christian and teaching it with his view. And it kind of gathered, and in the New Age, it gathered other views as well. And it's really just this, it looks very complex and wonderful, uh, because that's what I heard one Enneagram teacher in the church say, it's just so, he was so impressed that it was complex. It's so complex. And I thought, yay, astrology is even more complex. <laughs> Don't be impressed by complexity, because almost everything in the occult is complex. That's the nature of it. It is complex. That's how it draws you in. And it, and it makes it seem valid because it is complex. But actually, that stuff can be made up over time. And it can just develop. It also just kind of develops on its own. It takes on its own life. And so um, there is no psychological validity to it. So you're going to put yourself in a category and you're going to start filtering yourself, who you are, through that category and start seeing yourself, I'm a, I'm a seven, so that's why right. I do that, and I'm a seven, and that's, right. that's, that explains why I act that way, and that explains why my husband, who's a four, doesn't like it when I do this. Then you start, like, you really have put yourself in a box that isn't even real, 
and you start, it's just like the Zodiac or astrology. Well, I'm a Gemini and you know, my husband's a cancer and that's why we have so many arguments over such and such. It just becomes the same. I saw this with astrology mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you really do define yourself in astrology by, you know, your, your chart, if you get your chart done. So, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a Sagittarius and I'm Aries rising and my moon is in, um, you know, Virgo. And so the, because of that, blah, 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 blah. And that's exactly what I see when people talk about the Enneagram. It's like, well, you know, I'm a four, but I have a three wing. <laughs> so, you know, that helps me to deal with my four issues or whatever. Mm -hmm. It just. Um, well, there, there, and there's only been one that we can find so far, just one actual what's called a psychometric test to find out, is this credible? And the answer is, it is not only not credible, it is dangerous. Jay Mendenwalt did that. He did a two-part article on it. Uh, so from a psychometric standpoint, it is dangerous. Uh, in addition to which, he talked about something called the Ferrer effect, which Marcia talks about as well with astrology. And the Ferrer effect is that you, when you read something like this, it is self-authenticating. And so you read yourself into it and you pick aspects of yourself that you think fit it and you ignore other aspects that would preclude you from fitting into it. And so you remodel yourself and your thinking to be a seven or to be a three because you kind of like that mm. description. So uh, if someone came up to me and said, you know, they just told me I was a one and then they gave me an Enneagram book and it gave all the qualities of a one. I would probably be like, yeah, that's exactly right. It pegged probably, me right. Because I would right. just find, I would just hear and read what I saw in myself and reject right. what didn't describe right. me. That yeah. is, that's the Ferrer effect, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's like the fancy way of saying, when we look at a picture of a bunch of people, we zone in on ourselves and we look at ourselves. And then once we make sure that we look okay, we maybe glance at everybody else. It, it is very self-serving. You know, like I'm this way and it's not just excusing, like, don't hug me. I'm a five or whatever. Uh, I have heard that. Um, right. But also, yeah, it just allows you, I'm going to be extra. I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to do these things because I'm a seven. I am, I guess, a seven. That's what I've been told. But anyway, let's, let's move on. I have like two or three more questions I want to get to and we're already going so long, but it's fascinating. So I like it. What do you say when people say to you, well, God is a God that redeems. Can't God redeem the Enneagram? Don's excited. Do you yeah. want to answer this one first? Well, I'm a little more crass than Marcia is, but when <laughs> I've had this question and I say, can God redeem prostitution? People are shocked and they go, well, he can redeem the prostitute. And I go, you've just evaded the question. God <laughs> redeems people. He doesn't redeem evil actions. Hmm. So hmm. there's lots of things that God, God, re, God will redeem creation. We know that. Uh, but he doesn't redeem sinful actions. He doesn't redeem things that compete with him. He doesn't redeem occultism. He redeems individuals that are involved with those things. So the answer is no. Hmm. God doesn't redeem everything. And so is it line up with Scripture? Does it line up with the kind of life that God requires us to live as holy and dedicated to him? Is focusing on ourselves our primary responsibility or is focusing on the Lord your God and serve him only our primary task? Well, that's yeah. really good. Yeah, because add? if you think about the Ouija, would God redeem the Ouija board? No. Does he redeem tarot cards? I mean, if you're going to go down that road, then you're going to have to apply it to, to tarot cards 
and Ouija boards. You know, if, if you think the Enneagram can be redeemed, it's the same thing because the basis for the Enneagram is in occult and new age beliefs and practices. Right. And it cannot therefore offer anything beneficial to a Christian, especially. It, a Christian can't grow spiritually with it. And they may think they're growing, but this again is a self-deception. One mm -hmm. of the things that Menwalt points out, uh, uh, he has his two-part article is, part one is showing how it fails this uh, criteria to be a, a tool. And psychometric part, test, right? Psychometric test. And part two, he explains why people believe it. And he says it's the same reasons that people believe astrology is true. And he, and one of those reasons, he, I think he gives 11 reasons. One of them is, is that he says we actually don't know ourselves that well. We think we do, but we really don't. We're actually very self-deceived and we tend to mm. think of ourselves in a certain way that is not completely accurate. And so, and I, I think that's really true. And I think the older you get, the more you see that. <laughs> and you, you're more aware of your faults and your weaknesses over time. And you think, yeah, I always thought I was this way, but now I see, you know, I did that. So we, we're self-deceived. We can't count on ourselves to evaluate ourselves. We just, you know, ideally. So would you say for those, because I mean, I, I just had a conversation with some very close friends recently about this a married couple. And they said, we're willing to walk away from this now that we know this, but man, it really helped our marriage because we realized I was this and this. And, and these were the ways that I particularly sinned against my wife or was selfish or whatever. So would you say to those people that those things may be true, that you sin in this way and you found nuggets of truth, but that wasn't because of the Enneagram. It's because you were wanting to make your marriage better to begin with. Like, how would you answer that? Yeah, I think, in fact, I think maybe Jay Menwell has that in his article. or mm. I saw this somewhere where if it gets you talking, yeah. you start talking with your, your spouse about issues that you have. And those come up because you're discussing your Enneagram types. Right. You actually real issues will come up. And then mm -hmm. you start dialoguing. And, and then, yes, then you start maybe resolving some issues. And that's because those issues are real and you're now trying to resolve them. Right. Yeah. When, when, I do, when I do premarital counseling, I, the couple has to do uh, 50 agreements. They have to write 10 agreements in five areas. Now, they get irritated when I lay that out for them. Uh, and then they, when they ask me afterwards later why I had them do that, I said, because I want you to fight. I want you to learn how to talk to each other. If I don't care about the agreements, I don't really care what they say in the end. I want you to figure out how for you as a woman to say to him, you are misunderstanding what I'm saying, mm -hmm. right? If we don't do that, then, then we're not going to get anywhere. The Enneagram might facilitate that, but it's mm -hmm. the talking that's helping. It's not the Enneagram. Right. Gotcha. So, that's, that's, think, that's really important. Yeah. I think, I think that speaks to the, the larger picture of, of a, like, you know, the pragmatic, pragmatic, I mean, one of the appeals of something is that it works. And so one of the difficulties about Christianity is that, I mean, Jesus himself says that to, to be my follower, you'll lose your life. There'll be struggles and difficulties, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, it's like you have to convince people to be a follower of Christ that it won't always work, if you will but other things might work. And so the question isn't whether or not it works. The question is whether or not it's true. Right. Mm. So, yes, well, yes. It, it is. It is. Another thing I would, I would mention on, on this uh, communication thing is because the Bible actually tells us how to have 
a good relationship with her wife or husband or pastor or kids, whatever. And it summed down in, in, in just a small phrase, serve one another. If I spend my time trying to outserve my wife, <laughs> I don't have time to see her imperfections. I, I'm pretty sure she doesn't have many anyway, but uh, I would, <laughs> I, I don't. And, and conversely, as she's spending time serving me, she doesn't have time to figure out that I'm not actually all that good of a guy. Right? <laughs> because we're spending more time serving one another than we are trying to get them to serve me. That's good. the secret. That is, yeah. and, and we find it, as, as Paul says, husband, love your wife. This is pretty interesting. Why does he have to say that? Because that's the hardest thing for us to do. We do tasks. You know, mm -hmm. when I get the marriage task over, now it's over and I'm on doing my next task. And she's left behind going, well, wait a minute. Wh why don't you care about me? Yeah. Uh, right. On the other hand, it says, wives, you know, uh, uh, honor your husbands, reverence your husbands. Why is that? Because we don't love our wives. They build another life without us and we're excluded. I have to tell you a secret. If you are serving your wife, there is nothing she won't do for you. Hmm. All right, they marriage counseling thrown in for free, y'all. Yeah, and, and it's biblical. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I want to get to one. Oh, go ahead, Marsha. I just want to say real quickly that um, the Bible tells us that we're being, uh, as Christians, being conformed to the image of Christ. Right. And that is what God is shaping us into that pruning us, you know, disciplining us, discipling us. Um, and that is what is going on. And that's what we're supposed to want. When you get into this Enneagram thing, you, it takes your focus off of that because it's not about being conformed to the image of Christ. That's not right. what it's about at all. And right. so it's like another path that takes you away. And that takes, you know, and, and so that's why another reason I think it's dangerous. You can't, you can forget that, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be, be, allow myself to be shaped and formed into the image of Christ. And um, that should be our, you know, our focus and the goal of something just to keep in mind, you know, as, as we go through life and, and learn and hopefully grow. And the Enneagram takes, see that this is because this is how false teachings work. They, right. take, they take you away. Somehow they will undermine the truth every single time. Right. Let me finish with this last question, which we've touched on a little bit, but I would be remiss if I didn't because um, a few people have already asked. Everyone I've talked to about this is like, mm, don't take away my Enneagram, you know. Um, how would you respond to someone who said that exposing the history behind the Enneagram is being so crazy, like we talked about, that that and, you know, talking about its origins is just the genetic fallacy. And you will have to, of course, define for us what the genetic fallacy is, but isn't that just kind of what we're doing here? Yeah, the genetic fallacy is when you say, um, it's when you claim something is invalid solely because of its origins or the way it started. So that is the genetic fallacy. And the reason why it doesn't apply to the Enneagram is because, well, there's really two reasons. One reason is, is that the origins do matter. You know, if you have, if you have this thing, it's supposed to tell who you are or even is supposed to help you with a spiritual growth or your sin patterns or whatever, it should have an origin in some kind of research and some kind of valid study. There needs to be an objective basis for it, something empirical, which the Enneagram doesn't have. And so that's one reason that in, in this case, the origins do matter. Just mm -hmm. like for astrology, 
I could say, well, let's, okay, let's not do the Enneagram, let's do astrology and I'll do people's charts for free and I'll tell you what your moon sign is and where your Mercury is and what you're rising. <laughs> and then you can learn who you are that way. And then people would be like, well, wait a minute though. Hopefully they would say, astrology isn't really valid. That's not recognized in psychology as a valid tool. Right. And so the origins, you know, have some meaning. The other reason um, that it does, that the genetic fallacy doesn't apply is that the teachings that are with the Enneagram, as we've talked about in the program, are contrary to a biblical worldview. So that's the other reason. Uh, so the genetic fallacy just doesn't apply to the Enneagram. Right. And, and it, claims, it, it claims to be a spiritual tool. Right. So the origins become important because what spirit are they coming from? Ooh, yeah. If it's coming from the spirit of occultism and new age, it is opposed to the word of God, as we've demonstrated several times. And we talk about, again, in our book, Richard Rohr and the Enneagram Secret, we deal with all of that pretty in depth. Yeah. Uh, so the origins become important. Is it, or does it originate from what God has revealed in his written word or from another spirit? If it's from another spirit, we must abandon it. All right. I know we're just about out of time. Can I make one more observation or ask a question, really? Which is that in that Richard Rohr quote, and I, you, what you said, Don, reminded me of it. He kept talking about how everything was sacred. And I thought that was an interesting word because when we think of sacred, we think holy. We think holy in a good way, right? But we would, we would agree that maybe, I don't say everything, but that, that, that there's a lot in the world that is spiritual, but we would say that there's a lot that's not sacred. Right. Don't we make a distinction between mm -hmm. sacred as in good and but then things that are spiritually bad? But where, does he does he think if it's spiritual, it, it, it's all good? Hmm. Yeah. But some things are not spiritual or non-spiritual. Like a tree isn't spiritual right, or non-spiritual. Right. You know, unless you're into pantheism where <laughs> everything is God and you have, you know, you're going to uh, be a princess whatever and go talk to Mother Willow. Uh, to get some insight into what decision I should make. Mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, so Eastern mysticism, which Rohr is very involved with, views everything as sacred in that sense. A yeah, tree he, is just as sacred as a human. It's just as sacred as a cockroach. He does. They're all sacred. Yeah, he believes that. And when he was on Oprah, he leaned down uh, to and mm -hmm. the grass, they were sitting outside. And he said, even this blade of grass, you know, is, is part of the creation that's going to be all pulled towards this point of perfection. He said everything in the universe. And I think he would say a tree is sacred because right. God is in everything. Mm -hmm. So it's therefore by definition sacred. And that's his view. He believes that it's all, it's all, and spiritual is good. But it's, I think sacred to him really means that it's, it's sacred because it has God in it. And Christ is this power that's working on it to pull it towards this point of perfection. The right. universal Christ, not Jesus. We would not want to get that. Right. It wouldn't be Jesus. He says this is the universal Christ. Universal right? Christ right? And that's his view. He, yeah. he really believes that. And he's very big on talking about that quite often. And so well, the whole point of the Enneagram is to bring to the realization that, in fact, you have never sinned. Your true self is still with God, never has been separated from God, even though that's what Evan pointed us out before, that we are separated from God in sin and trespass. That's what Romans tells us. It's very clear. 
He says, no, that's not really exactly accurate. We have always been with Christ. We just have constructed a false self that believes we are sinners. And the Enneagram is your path to the realization that really you're not. Yeah. Man, we could go on for ages about this. New ages. I'm kidding. Okay. Had to get a mom joke in there. But um, if you want more information on this, if you're listening and you're like, okay, I got to dig into this, a few places to go. And I'm going to ask you guys to also promote your own stuff. But the book that these two wrote is called Richard Rohr and the Enneagram Secret. You can get it on Amazon. Um, Also, Marsha was in the latest version of the American Gospel movies, talking some about Richard Rohr and some of this kind of progressive theology. Um, but also if people want to come and read articles or learn more about you guys, Marsha, tell us again, the site that they can go to. Okay, my website is christiananswersforthenewage.org and just go to the articles page and I have tons of articles on there. Yeah. The articles page is all alphabetical. So you can just search up whatever you want to know about and, uh, it's great. And then Don, do you have a place that people can go if they want to learn more about, I know you do a lot of work with like cults and things. I'm going to give you two. One is specifically for the Enneagram. It's called Mm EnneagramSecret.com. EnneagramSecret.com. You go there. Uh, There's uh, the first video you see is about a 10-minute overview of Marsha talking about the history of the Enneagram. There are, uh, uh, there's a uh, uh, nine-piece series uh, that she and I did on the Enneagram. Uh, There's videos. It was a nine-piece series, really? That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're short. They're short. Uh, they're short. They're like uh, between twelve and twenty-four minutes or so. Okay. Um, and and I did all my dad jokes in those, but just because I like to. Uh, <laughs> and we also I, I also we also have a YouTube channel, and and uh, uh, one of the things that we with Marsha when she's on, we have to do a uh, we we created a a uh, disclaimer for her that says she takes no responsibility for any of our jokes because we love satire. Uh, Y'all so are funny. Enneagramsecret.com. Our website is midwestoutreach.org, midwestoutreach.org, and uh, we have tons of articles on there on all sorts of topics and links to all of our other places. You can go uh, see what we're up to, and we write about a lot of different sorts of things, not just cults, but New Age, uh, the UN. We did uh, something on the UN not too long ago, Hmm. uh, and globalism, so we do a lot of different sorts of things. Yeah. Well, um, and for our listeners, if you don't like what you hear and you have angry emails you want to send, Evan's email address is E. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. But of course, you can find us at facebook.com slash theology on tap Houston. Um, you can search us up on uh, Instagram, hashtag Houston TOT. Um, and soon we will have a website for you to go to. But uh, Until we all meet again and talk about more interesting things, uh, we encourage you as always to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.